We have already heard Pastor Will speak and begin our series looking at the grace that God has shown Hannah in giving birth to a son, Samuel. We've seen chapter 2 of Hannah's prayer pointing to this biblical theme we see throughout Scripture of God bringing down the proud, God uplifting the lowly. And there is no better example of expressing this and seeing that theme than in our text this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, where we will be speaking about Eli and his sons. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And before we read, I ask that you would pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, would you open all of our minds to see glorious things from your word? I pray that we might be able to meditate on your precepts so that we can understand your law today. Help us to see your son Jesus clearly in the book of 1 Samuel. We pray this in his name. Amen. Again, this is 1 Samuel, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sins of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by the woman for petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil deeds from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear of the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your fathers all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above my fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house, the house of your fathers should go down shall go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall be not an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will rise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver of a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of your priests place that I might eat a morsel of bread. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Contrast, so often used as a tool for teaching. We have two separate characters. They have two separate paths. And we as readers are left with a lesson. Darkness is contrasted with light. Good is held forth separate from evil. In fact, so often when we 
read the Bible for ourselves. A simple tool for trying to understand what God is trying to teach us is asking this question. Who is being commended in the story? Who is being condemned? What example am I being set forth to follow? Today, we are given a clear opportunity of this character contrast. A clear contrast of what faithfulness looks like this morning. And through this, we can see even God's work in the midst of unfaithfulness. We see the unfaithfulness in Israel. We see the faithfulness of God in the midst of it. Because first, see our first example. We see the unfaithfulness of Eli's sons. Verse 12, how does it describe them? They were the sons of Eli who were worthless men. What a nice description to be given immediately of yourself. They did not know the Lord. It is one thing for the laity of Israel to not know the Lord. But for the priests themselves to have this description, it shows how spiritually bankrupt Israel has become how corrupt the entire nation has been. That even the priests themselves are worthless and do not have this relationship to Yahweh. They are pastors in pulpits described as worthless, as people who do not know the Lord. In fact, Look again at the text. We don't need to reread verses 13 through 16, but you heard what was going on, what they were doing, what Hophni and Phinehas, what the heinous crime they were doing. Because Leviticus sets apart portions of the offering for the priests. It was their livelihood. It was how they were to survive. But Leviticus is very explicit of what they are to take and it is to take place after the offering. We see in verses 13 through 17, Hophni and Phinehas have created this embezzling scheme of taking the offerings and taking what they want before it is given to the Lord. They take uncooked meat. They are pastors and priests embezzling the finances in ancient form. Not only do we see these priests looking for personal gain. We also see these priests are also looking for personal pleasure. Because what happens in verse 22? What does Eli, the father, even say to them? That he was very old and he kept on hearing all that his sons were doing and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. In ancient Near Eastern culture, in temples, there were cult prostitutes that was a part of religious worship. And Hophni and Phinehas began to treat Israel, treat the Old Testament religion as no different than any other religion. In fact, going even further than this, this is most likely just them seeking their own position of power and using that to abuse these women. But this is not a consensual relationship. 
This is them leveraging their power and their authority to take advantage of women for their own personal gain and their own personal pleasure. It's not hard for us to contemporize Hophni and Phinehas because actually when we look at what they're doing, it is the very same problems that so often happens with pastors that we can use examples turning on TV and see televangelists that seem more concerned about funding their own airplane, private jet, their own bank account, their nicer house and nicer car than actually what is being used for the Lord. You can think of people like Ravi Zacharias, who just like Hophni and Phinehas leveraged their power to take advantage of women. Ravi Zacharias spent decades behind the scenes abusing women for his own personal pleasure. It wasn't made clear until after his death what he was doing. In fact, we don't need to use extreme examples. You may know of people in ministries, have heard of people in ministry who have used their power for their own personal gain, have used narcissistic traits and this position of authority, abused it for their own personal gain, just like these priests back in 1 Samuel. Our text teaches us that God is not indifferent to narcissism. He's not indifferent to wickedness. He's not indifferent to sin itself. And if that is true, how much more is it true for people in positions of authority in the church? Is the very reason why James in James chapter 3 tells us that not many of us should become teachers because we will be judged with stricter judgment for what we say and what we do. What we see from this passage is this. The example of Hophni and Phinehas should ultimately give us this call to be praying for the leadership in the church. As we did earlier, of praying for the entire denomination of the PCA as pastors and ruling elders are coming together, that we would have wisdom and discernment. You should pray for pastors such as even Will and myself for us to guard our hearts, to guard our hearts from idols, to repent where we have the temptation to follow after the same problems that Hophni and Phinehas so often wanted to chase after. And in fact, it's easy for us to separate ourselves and think this is only about pastors here. Yet this shows us the seriousness and the heinousness in which God looks at sin. Because in verse 17, what they were doing is described by the Lord. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. So tempting for us to become inoculated and indifferent to the sins of our life and to act as if if no one is no knows about it, 
or even if I am in the same position of authority, even if it is outside the church, that there is no harm that happens. What we see here is that God has particular sight on this heinous wickedness, and it will be judged, whether in this life or the life to come. And as we said, we are to pray for pastors. We are to pray for ourselves as we guard our own hearts from idols. But second, you also are to call out this sin when you see it. This is not a matter of indifference. Because if it is heinous in God's sight, when you see power being abused in the church, when there's real power dynamics going on where you don't feel as if you can confront people in authority, we are to speak about it and we are not to turn a blind eye in the worry that it will do damage to the church. Because if anything, ignoring sin, ignoring the sins of Hophni and Phinehas, does even more damage to the witness of God and his church. We see the unfaithfulness of the sons, but we also see the unfaithfulness of Eli himself. Because they have been unfaithful, they are sinning and using this position of authority to gain their own gain and pleasure. What is Eli doing in the midst of this? Again, read verse 22. You might have already heard it for yourself. That Eli was very old, and he kept on hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. This was an open secret to Eli. He knew the sin, the wickedness that they were practicing. But what does he do? Does Eli try to remove them from this position? Does Eli rebuke them and defrock them from ministry? Verse 23, he begins to rationalize with his sons. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear of the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? There's this reoccurring narrative patterning in the Old Testament and the New Testament of fathers and sons. You might know of it and think of it in the back of your mind. Think of Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron is ordained as the priest. His sons are ordained as priests as well. But Nadab and Abihu, the sons, they offer strange, unauthorized offerings to the Lord. And God strikes them dead on the spot. We may even be tempted to sympathize with Eli. Of put ourselves in his shoes. Imagine if it was my children doing this. My children practicing this wickedness of how would I respond in this situation? In fact, today we have the temptation to fall into the same problem that Eli has. 
whether it is our children, whether it is our friends, whether it is the people we know, where we begin to downplay the danger and heinousness of sin. We excuse it for those around us. We ignore it. We rationalize it. We justify it. And we may even do that for ourselves. We might not do it for other people. We may do it in our own life, not looking at sin the same way God himself looks at our sin. Christians, it's very easy for us to become inoculated and anesthetized with sin. We can think of modern culture and modern media, where Kevin DeYoung tells us one of the greatest dangers of Hollywood, of modern storytelling, is how we've begun to actually sympathize with villains. We give them tragic backstories. We give them tragic childhood. We give their motivations for what they're doing. We put it in a moral gray area where it is not perfectly clear whether they're doing wrong or not. To one degree or another, we do not have this strong contrast in society of what is good and what is evil. And we can do the same thing that Eli does in our council is more to rationalize, excuse this behavior. In fact, we even see just how dangerous sin can be in our own life in verse 25. Because despite Eli's appeals, despite everything that happens, they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. For all of us today, we should not take comfort if we are not convicted over our sin. Because that is the very picture of what a hard heart looks like. Similar to the story of Exodus and Pharaoh, where Pharaoh does not let his God's people go, and eventually it begins with Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and it leads to God hardening his own heart, where he becomes so entrenched in his own sin that he cannot discern good from evil. It's the greatest danger where we feel safe and secure, just because we are simply not convicted over what we're doing. With all this corruption, with all this hopelessness, Israel, this spiritual and moral bankruptcy. It's hard for us to find hope in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But don't forget where 1 Samuel is actually taking place, where it's coming at the tail end, because 1 Samuel is still within the context at the end of the book of Judges. Eli is actually one of the final judges that we had, of these people that were prototypes of kings, leaders of Israel. However, in that time, before there was a king in Israel, the description of the people, of the priests, of everyone, was the end of Judges, the final verse, where it says, in those days, 
there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But don't forget that clear contrast we've talked about at the very beginning, where we are to see where God is condemning people. But also, you might have heard it in the background again and again, where God is not distant, and he is actually commending someone in this story. At the very end of Will's sermon last week, we have this simple phrase about the boy Samuel, who was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. And it repeats that phrase in our text, even into chapter 3, three or four times again. Every time we see what Eli and his sons are doing, we quickly have a contrast with what God is doing through Samuel, just in a very small portion of the section. In fact, that is even how God is so often at work, is we expect God to be in the front, taking over the narrative of working in extraordinary, miraculous ways even for ourselves, so often how God is at work is in these small areas of faithfulness that we see in Samuel. This ordinary situation, these uneventful ministry that gives us a hopeful thread continuing throughout the narrative. It is Samuel where the sons are degrading themselves. It is Samuel who is growing in stature and in favor with God and with man. <clears throat> However, this story does not hinge on Samuel's faithfulness because God is actually using Samuel to express his own faithfulness <clears throat> of what he is going to do in spite of what is happening with the sons and with Eli. And I would encourage you to look at verse 19 of that strong rebuke God gives to Eli. It is similar to Nathan confronting David of his own sin when this man comes to Eli and says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling?" And honor your sons above my by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. <clears throat> Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I will promise, I promise that your house and the house of your fathers should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me, I shall I shall be light, shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. God does not excuse Eli's blindness. He does not excuse the hardness of heart for his sin, but brings direct judgment on the entire house. And he promises to bring an end to Eli and all of his people, bring them out of the priesthood for what they have done to his people, to God's people. <clears throat> he promises that 
Eli and his sons would die together, which we will see in a few chapters. He promises that Eli's family would be obliterated, which we will see in chapter 22 when Doeg slaughters the priest. And we will see this completed at the end of David's reign when Abiathar, the last descendant of Eli, is removed from the priesthood and all of his lineage. In response of this, God himself says in verse 35 that I will raise up a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And yes, that begins with Zadok, the priest who would replace Abiathar. But again and again, we would see that every single priest of the Old Testament, to one degree or another, fails to uphold the position of authority, the position of honor that God has given them. <clears throat> they neglect their duties in the same way as Hophni and Phinehas. They become just as corrupt as the people in times of corruption. And ultimately, that promise that God makes in verse 35 is looking way beyond any of the priests we could see in 1 Samuel or the entire Old Testament, which is why we need to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Because in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23, this is the description of Jesus Christ and his ministry as the greatest high priest. Chapter 7, verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from the continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Eli was sinful, he was culpable, he was stained and entrenched by his sin. Jesus is described as holy, innocent, undefiled, and separate from sinners. The sons dishonored sacrifices for what they did in verses 13 and 17. They sought after their own personal gain, their own personal privilege, their own personal pleasure. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, because not only does he always make intercession for us, but he himself was the perfect sacrifice for sin. The Old Testament gives us a sacrificial system through imperfect priests. Jesus is the better priest, offering a better covenant, because he gave himself as a better sacrifice. For all of us today, 
you may have a negative picture of religious leadership. You may see pastors looking more like Hophni, Phineas, Eli, Nadab, and Abihu, whatever example it is. <clears throat> you may feel that you yourself look like these people to one degree or another, and you're not even in the office to begin with. That You are so entrenched by your sin. You are so inoculated by culture. The promise we have is that Will and I may fail, that pastors in your life will fail, but you have the hope today that your standing before God is not mediated through priests or through pastors, but is through the great high priest, Jesus Christ himself, who is the perfect expression of faithfulness in the priesthood. The Bible loves to use contrasts, as we see. And it often teaches us a lesson. And in closing, there is no greater contrast we could see in this story than the work of these failing priests and the work of that great high priest, Jesus Christ, who is in heaven today, interceding for sins. And for all who draw near to that priest, you have a holy, innocent, and undefiled high priest who is always making intercession for you. It's with that that we pray. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, that we can draw near to him. And we know that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, that we may be the most unfaithful people on the face of the earth. And yet, the promise of the gospel has nothing to do with our faithfulness, but the work of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished at the cross. Pray for all of us who may be so captured and enchanted by whatever sins we hold in our hearts, that we know we can take them all to this high priest. And he does not look at us with disgust. He does not look at us trying to find personal pleasure or privilege for himself. But he takes these sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He brings us into your family where we truly can be called holy, innocent, and undefiled by our sins. We may not feel that way today, but we know with the hope of the gospel that one day we will be glorified standing with this priest. We thank you for your word that it is able to convict us, but is able to build us up in comfort through this Savior, and we pray it in his name. Amen. <clears throat>